Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We've got a special code for podcast listeners that gets you a 20% discount subscription to New Scientist. The code is POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and you'll get all the contents of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories to listen to in our app. That's newscientist.com slash pod20 to get your 20% discount. Hello everyone, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is the show where we explore the latest in all things science, from breakthroughs and discoveries to the mysteries of the universe. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host, Penny Sarche. This week, we're also joined by colleagues Jacob Aaron, Alison George and Claire Wilson. Hello, all. Hello. 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 This week, we're going to look at a few aspects of the awful situation in Ukraine. And we're also looking into the equally troubling new climate change report that came out this week. Yeah, two very grim and tragic situations there. And we're going to be hearing from a climate scientist in Ukraine a bit later, too. But since it's important to try and keep abreast of other things going on in science and trying to mix it up a bit. Also on the show, we're going to be looking at some absolutely amazing examples of female behaviour and general non-binary aspects of of sexual biology in animals. And we've got a new interpretation of the stone arrangements in Stonehenge. Yeah, apparently it's a calendar. (laughs) Apparently it is. And we're looking at the latest analyses of the seafood market in Wuhan, where COVID originated or was always thought to originate. But yeah, let's start with Ukraine and let's start with nuclear war, which is a terrifying thing to actually have to say that. Jacob, amongst lots of horrible things going on, Russia raised its nuclear readiness level by ordering forces to this special regime of combat duty. Now, do we know how much of this is is sabre rattling or posturing by Putin? So the first thing to say is that nuclear conflict is unlikely. We're not all about to go and hide in the bunkers, but it's also not an impossible situation with one researcher telling us we're now closer uh, than any point since the Cold War to a nuclear conflict. And the real risk is if Vladimir Putin feels he's been backed into a corner, he might decide to deploy nuclear weapons as a show of force. There's a possibility of them being actually used in Ukraine, but he could also detonate a device at sea just as a warning. Obviously, there would still be major consequences of doing that. One thing I was wondering was, you know, Putin doesn't have a a box with a a button on it that he can like literally launch a nuclear device. Doesn't it have to have agreement of like high ranking officials in the field in order to turn a key and then and then it all happens you know so you'd hope if that's the case that there could be someone who would push back against an order to deploy a nuclear device so my understanding is that putin can't unilaterally decide to launch a nuclear missile as you say you know there are high ranking officials but there are concerns that particularly during the past few years of the pandemic Putin has been increasingly isolated. He's he's not want to physically be in the same location as people due to the risk of COVID. 
and that means that there are questions about his his state of mind and things like that. Obviously, it is all quite speculative at this point. And yes, you would hope that there would be ongoing discussions rather than Putin just hitting a button. Yeah. And the other thing that's different about Russia compared to other nuclear powers is that is these lots of tactical, so-called tactical nuclear weapons, like small yield ones that have been talked about being used in the field more. So, yeah, lots of arms control people don't really like the phrase tactical nuclear weapons. Um, you know, all nuclear weapons are are a nuclear weapon, but certainly there are smaller yield weapons that could be used without literally destroying the entire planet. <laughs> I guess the thing to remember is, you know, the bombs that the US dropped in Japan during World War II were small yield compared to the larger ones in the arsenal today. So it would be extremely devastating still. Claire, like putting aside nuclear weapons, let's talk about the humanitarian situation in Ukraine. Yes, obviously, um, there is a terrible loss of life from the direct military actions in Ukraine at the moment. What aid agencies are warning about is that there is also going to be additional loss of life from the, the unfolding humanitarian disaster there. However, the current invasion proceeds. So in the immediate future, hospitals and pharmacies are starting to run out of medical supplies and suffering power shortages. The World Health Organization said on Monday that many hospitals were on the verge of running out of oxygen supplies. I mean, this is partly from the very basic problem of trucks not being able to take oxygen from the manufacturing plants to the hospitals because the roads are blocked or unsafe. The manufacturers are also running out of a key mineral called zeolite that is necessary for making medical oxygen because it adsorbs nitrogen out of the air. Also, whenever a country's normal supply and trade routes are disrupted, you have the problem of, of just people with long-term health conditions like asthma and diabetes who are dependent on certain medications to live uh, running out of their stocks. So things like insulin for people with diabetes, that is now in short supply in Ukraine. There's also disruption to the childhood vaccination campaign against polio because they've just had a, a small resurgence there. So that's all um, a very serious situation. Uh, what concerns are there also in the longer term? Right, so whatever happens in the next few days and weeks, there are going to be many refugees. So over a million people are thought to have fled Ukraine already to neighbouring countries. And um, depending on what happens next, there could end up being perhaps a few million people who they, they may either become international refugees or have to move internally within the country to reach safety. Right. So all of this needs to be planned for then. Yes. And uh, obviously refugees need to be housed. And uh, there are considerations like cholera, infectious disease. Um, two water treatment plants in the east of the country have actually been directly affected by shelling. And so that has disrupted clean water supply to about a million people. So cholera could be a threat here. I mean, you're also just going to have disruption of routine and emergency healthcare, like help for women giving birth. Okay, well, it's not easy to follow a humanitarian crisis, um, but we're going to have maybe one of the abruptest segues in the history of our podcast. <laughs> we're just going to move straight into sexual behaviour in animals. Yes. 
Nicely done. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> With a plum. So in particular, we're going to be looking at the sexist basis of much of the way that we think about female animals and their behaviour. And the reason we're talking about this this week is the publication of a book taking a new look at sexual behaviour, but with unbiased eyes. The book is called Bitch, A Revolutionary Guide to Sex, Evolution and the Female Animal. And Rowan caught up with the author, Lucy Cook. Lucy, thanks for joining us. Now, you say in your new book that Darwin's theory of sexual selection was incubated in misogyny. Can you tell us why? Yeah, they're quite strong words, those, aren't they? Mm. But I think they're true because, you know, Darwin... He's my academic hero. I mean, I'm an evolutionary biologist and, you know, his theory of evolution by natural selection is one of the greatest scientific theories out there. But it's important to remember that even geniuses like Darwin aren't immune to insidious cultural bias. You know, he was Darwin was a man of his time and that time was the Victorian era and it coloured his theory of sexual selection, so that he painted the female of the species in the shape of a Victorian housewife. <laughs> and and unfortunately, you know, because Darwin said that, it meant that for really nearly a century and a half, those sexist stereotypes really continue to persist. Well, your book is called Bitch. We mentioned strong language. The book is called Bitch. And that really drives home the idea that females are not these passive receptacles for sperm. And there's so many amazing examples in the book. But tell us about moles, like garden moles that many people might have in their lawn. Being a mole, it turns out, it's really hard work. You live underground, there's no light, you've got to dig for a living. You've got to consume an awful lot of worms every day in order to sort of power power it. So evolution has equipped the female mole with, with some extraordinary adaptations. She's got a stereo, she can smell in stereo and she's got an extra thumb. Well, both, both males and females have that. But most extraordinary about the female mole are her gonads because her gonads are described as ovotestes and they are, there's ovarian tissue at one end and then testicular tissue at the other end of, of her gonads, that they're internal, obviously. During the breeding season, the ovarian size swells and produces eggs. But during the rest of the season, the ovarian tissue shrinks and is dwarfed by the testicular tissue, which pumps out testosterone and makes her a really hardcore digger. So she gives her more power for digging. And during that time, sorry for the graphic information, but her vagina seals up and she has a clitoris that resembles a, a penis. And for me, that story was was really fascinating. I had no idea. And I think it really shows how extraordinarily plastic sexual morphology and hormones and, and it, as it turns out, genetics and, and behavior really are in the animal kingdom. And, and all of these sort of preconceptions we have about binary expectations of bodies, brains, behavior, etc., just get blown out of the water by so many animals. Another bit that struck me was in the book, you talk about the white mice that are used in labs all over the world. So they've been bred, labs order them and they want a certain number of white mice and they're standardised so that you can do experiments on them. But they've been bred in a in this chauvinistic way, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was Catherine Dulac, actually, who's this astonishing Harvard scientist that I interviewed, who, who found out this amazing thing about there being a, a switch for parenting in the brain of, of mice. 
And that switch, it's exactly the same in males and females. And she supposes it'll be the same in humans, which is great news for for men, I think, because it it, it shows that they can be just as good at parenting as as females can. And she was complaining to me. She was, first of all, she was really excited I was writing the book. She was like, oh, about time, you know, because she was, one of the things she was really angry about was how how many studies on so-called sex differences use these lab mice in their experiments. And she was like, but so much of their behavior has been bred out to make them, you know, more domesticated and easier to handle, but, you know, in some way more what's expected of being female. And of course, that skews studies and, you know, in a way sort of exacerbates this idea that we have these strong differences between the sexes. When actually, you know, what I found was the sort of biggest revelation for me from writing this book was that males and females are really more alike than they are different. I mean, there's very few attributes that you can pin down and say, this really is male or this really is female, that most of them, you know, are shared. So the idea of sort of lazy stereotypes that are thrown out by evolutionary psychologists are really kind of tired and worn out and and Mm. not applicable. And tell us about anemone fish as well, because that's another one that really struck me. Yeah, so the anemone fish, everybody knows it. It's the Finding Nemo clownfish, and they live in in anemones, which are very hard to say. (laughs) And females are dominant. So what you have is you generally have a dominant female, and then there'll be a male that's her mate. And then there's one or two juvenile males generally in, in the group. If you take the dominant female out, she gets killed, whatever, then the male will become female and one of the juvenile males will start reproducing with her. And Justin Rhodes, who's an uh, American professor, he's been studying this because it, it allows us to see what happens in that process of feminization of the brain, which was long considered to be a passive process that just happened in the absence of testosterone. You know, that's this whole idea. Females are just passive. We just happen, whereas males are active. And obviously, that's just completely ludicrous because obviously an ovary takes as much effort to make as a, as a testes does. So he looked at this and to his surprise, he found that what happened was that almost immediately once you took the the dominant female out, the male started behaving like a female and was recognized as a female by the other fish. But it took up to a year for the gonads to catch up. And he showed me a bunch of these fish that were in the middle of their change. And and, and I said to him, well, so what, what sex are those fish? And he was like, good question. You know, what sex are they? Because you know, they've got testes, they're making sperm, so they're males by definition, but they're behaving like females and they're recognized by all these other fish as females. So what to say? You know, I thought that was really fascinating and it made me really realize that sexual behavior, sexuality, and even sexual identity can all be uncoupled, you know, even in a fish, you know, (laughs) so we are more alike than we are different. And, um, you know, I found that really heartening actually because I think as a woman I'd love to see an end to sexual inequality and I think probably by understanding that we're made of the same stuff you know we have the same potential good and bad that that's probably a a good thing to understand well that sounds great um I really did not know that about moles yeah moles are non-binary who knew um and there's so much uh, more in the book about that uh, so much good stuff in there 
Did you know we've launched our own online learning academy? New Scientist Academy is the home of immersive and interactive science courses designed by the team at New Scientist magazine and a global team of science experts. We are CPD accredited and we have courses suitable for all levels in some of the most engaging topics in science. Perhaps you'd like to know how to improve your gut health and your physical and mental health, or maybe you're curious to explore the laws of nature within the mysteries of the universe. Are you ready to understand the actual science behind health and happiness? Or perhaps quantum physics and the possibility of multiple worlds is where you'd like to expand your knowledge. New Scientist Academy is offering 50% off each of our immersive science courses until the end of March. Access your course on any internet accessible device and better still, complete it on your own schedule. Whatever your interest, New Scientist Academy has a course for you. You can check it out at newscientist.com courses and use code POD50 to save 50%. That offer ends on March 31st, 2022. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This week saw the publication of the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is part two of the IPCC's sixth assessment report, and it focuses on impacts, adaptation and vulnerability. Yeah, and uh, since Monday when this came out, I've just found it hard to stop thinking about the final line in the report. It says that any further delay in global action to slow climate change and adapt to its impacts will miss a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. I know that really sticks in your mind, the image of this rapidly closing window. Uh, The report finds that climate change has already caused increasingly irreversible loss and damage across all ecosystem types. And it finds that up to 3.6 billion people are highly vulnerable to climate change. And that line you just read out, the point about having to adapt, is really notable, isn't it? Because we haven't heard much of that before in previous IPCC reports. Yeah, that's right. So to find out more, I spoke with Svenja Serminski at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change in the Environment. And she's head of adaptation research there. So she's the perfect person to tell us about adaptation. And I started by asking her why the new report focuses on on climate adaptation much more so than in in previous IPCC reports. The new IPCC report underlines the scale of the challenge and and it shows that the impacts are getting worse, but it also says they are increasingly complex and more difficult to manage. So the time to really put adaptation action into place is now. Well, can you give us uh, one or two examples then of adaptation? Broadly speaking, 
climate adaptation really you know refers to action that helps us to cope with the changing climate, to prepare for more extreme weather, to reduce you know, our vulnerability, to make countries and communities more resilient. So adjust investment, business planning and policy in the face of climate change. And you know, that can take many forms, you know, irrigation systems to help farmers cope with droughts, changing crops, building flood defenses, designing homes that cope with hotter and wetter conditions, working with suppliers to make supply chains more resilient. I mean, there's a long list of adaptation action that is already being taken in some parts of the world, but you know, we, we really need to do more. So we hear about nature-based solutions in terms of adaptation, and we hear about hard and soft limits to adaptation. What are, what are these? Can you walk us through that? Yeah, adaptation has several limits. And what we usually say is when we mean hard, it's in terms of irreversible changes. Once you reach a certain point of sea level rise or a heat or drought level, there are actually not many options left other than to relocate, yeah. which unfortunately in some parts of the world is, is already happening. Yeah, And then we have the soft limits, and that refers to challenges in terms of lack of finance, knowledge, you know, technological issues. And that's also a big concern, but that's something we can address. And we really need to start closing that that financing gap that we see on the adaptation side. There's a really haunting last line in the report, isn't there, that says we've got this closing window of opportunity to act now. And the reports, these come out every seven years or so. So basically, if we don't really start moving now, we're going to be in a terrible place when the next report comes out, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, the, the report summarises the science and our current knowledge. And, you know, what it clearly tells us that things are getting worse. The good story is that, you know, there there is still time to take action for many of the risks. And I think that really needs to to be taken serious because that opportunity gets smaller and smaller the longer we wait. And I think the key point is that to see adaptation also as an investment. And I think far too often businesses, but also individuals, either think they have still time and, you know, this is something for the long term, or they see it as a cost and think, well, maybe I can get away by waiting a little bit or somebody else will do it for me. I think we need to become really clear on, you know, adaptation is essential. And if we wait longer, it's not going to work and it's going to get hugely more expensive. Now, the reports come out just in this terrible week where we've seen Russia invade Ukraine. Um, And I've seen people making the point that our reliance on fossil fuels has been a factor in the war. You know, we have Russia supplying so much oil and gas to Europe. How do you see that? Is there a link between climate change and the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, obviously, it's a very sad and and dramatic situation. But I think the key point is it brings home, you know, that our dependency on fossil fuels has immense cost, not just environmental cost, but also these geopolitical costs. So I think it just reinforces the need to invest in our transition away from fossil fuels. And I saw the Ukrainian delegates um, involved in this IPCC report asking colleagues to continue, you know, expressing how upset they were that the war is going to detract from the importance of the report, they said. And so, you know, we we can't be deflected, can we, from action now on climate like like we were with COVID. 
So how are we gonna how are we gonna speed things up? We've got to get those, that finance mechanism in place, haven't we, and, and get things going. The report is quite clear on the economic benefits of investing in, in adaptation right now. What we now need to do is really translate this into business decisions, into policies, and make clear that if we take action now, that's the right thing to do. If we wait longer, we are very likely to either face more costs, but also running out of options. So it's important, I think, also to see that climate change is a threat multiplier. And, you know, we, we're obviously facing many risks and climate change reinforces existing challenges. I mean, in, in a lot of conflict zones, climate change sort of adds to the, the challenge and, you know, our water scarcity is is a big, big concern. So I think we really have to see it through that lens and say it's, it's not a question of either, you know, having economic development or investing in climate change mitigation adaptation. No, no, it's a really joint effort. Yeah. When, when you mention business, it makes me think if governments at a state level are moving too slowly, you might expect individual companies like big multinational companies to actually move faster when they see their profits being impacted in the next few years. Is there any evidence of that happening? Yes. I mean, I, I work a lot with businesses and I think the awareness and also the need to understand what climate change means, you know, for my different products, for my investments. I think companies are starting to, to reflect on that. But I guess what is really important is that we see also supporting regulation and a sort of a level playing field and basically making this mandatory that you assess your climate risk, that you report on it, that you are transparent about what, as a company, what you're doing to address these risks. And I think that's starting to happen slowly, but it really needs to be sort of basically applied across all sectors. That was Svenja Siminski from the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change. And before the show, I was trying to get in touch with another climate scientist, an IPCC author, Svetlana Krakowska, who's based in Kiev in Ukraine, of course. Um, and I didn't manage to talk to her in time, but the BBC's science correspondent, Victoria Gill, did talk to her and very kindly sent me this clip where Svetlana talks about the link between climate change and the war. Why we need all this? And all this, again, caused by fossil fuels. So, sorry, I'm, you know, too much emotion. <laughs> you know, it's not the question of my personal ability to do work. This is a question of... Um, of all global society, scientific society and the political, social movements and everything. We just should understand that we are in the 21st century. All conflicts can be solved in a diplomatic way, with, with words, not with weapons. meaning of Stonehenge. That's a little niche Ilvis reference for there if you know you know. This is a fascinating new study that posits that the world famous ancient monument is a solar calendar that was used to track the days and months of the year. Ali, you've written about this for us. Didn't we already think it was a calendar? Yes, um, it's aligned to the winter solstice and the summer solstice. So it was thought it was in some kind of ancient calendar, but nobody knew how it worked. So lots of people had all sorts of intricate theories. Um, now, archaeologist Tim Darville of Bournemouth University has come up with a system that the days and the months of the year are literally embodied in the stones of the monument. 
literally embodied. So there's a Monday stone, a Tuesday. So no, not like that. What is it? Well, sort of. I mean, this all goes back to an amazing discovery from 2020, which identified where the large stones of Stonehenge called Sarsens come from. All but two of these come from a site 25 kilometres away, and they were all placed at Stonehenge at more or less the same time, 2,500 years ago. So that hints that they serve a common purpose. And these stones were used at Stonehenge in three different ways. 30 of them were placed into an enormous uh, stone circle. Four of them were used as what are known as station stones, placed in a rectangle outside the circle. And the rest were used to make five things called trilithons at the centre of the stone circle. These are um, structures shaped like the symbol pi, with two uprights and a lintel placed across the top. Okay, so the 30 stones, that gives the clue about that it's about the the monthly calendar. Yeah, so the clues to this calendar come from the numbers of these stones. So 30 works nicely for the number of days in the month. And a 30-day month was used as the basis for some ancient calendars. But if you've got 12 months of 30 days, that only leaves you with 360 days in a year. You're a bit short. So you need to add five extra days. And this is the system that the ancient Egyptians used, 12 30-day months with an extra, it's called an intercalary month of just five days. And at Stonehenge, the five trilithons could have marked this special month. So that that's all very clever, but I'm, I'm wondering about, what, what about leap years? You know, it, it doesn't all fit neatly every four years, we have to add a day. Yes, so that's where these four station stones come in. They could have been used to keep track of the leap year situation. But just tell us how it would work. Like, what would a sort of caveman gone up to Stonehenge two and a half thousand years ago and looked at it and go, oh, that, oh it's, it's Monday. Uh, <laughs> well, how do you tell what day it is? Oh, it doesn't really work like that. So you know when the year starts from the solstice. They think the winter solstice was the start of the new year. And then you count the stones in the circle and it's like a counting system. So was there like a a marker that you would move around or was it to do with the position of the sun and how it was hitting the stones? It's just literally counting the stones and they must have kept track of, of the days that were passing and the months that were passing somehow. It's not about the sunlight apart from the solstices as far as they know. Now, Penny, this week you've been looking back to the start of the pandemic and the origins of coronavirus. Yeah, that's right. I edited a piece by Michael LePage, frequent guest on the pod, looking at three studies which together give actually quite a surprisingly detailed look at how the virus first emerged at a market in Wuhan. Right. So this is the Hunan seafood market, right? That's been implicated since the very beginning, hasn't it? Yeah. So if you cast your minds back, um, (laughs) most of the first identified human cases of the virus had a direct link to the market. And this market was known to house various species of wild animals in cages that could have been the source of the virus. Okay. So what are we learning from the new studies? Well, we already knew by this point that the virus most likely originated in bats. It's very similar to some viruses that have been found wild in wild bats. But it seems most likely that the virus was uh, then brought to the Hunan market by some intermediary animal. And we don't know what kind of animal. We still don't know what kind of animal. But one of these new studies suggests that by November 2019, the virus was probably spreading among various cage mammals in the market already. 
The evidence for that comes from nearly 600 swabs taken at the market in January 2020. You know, they rapidly closed down the the market and started investigating. 33 of these swabs of the 600 tested positive for the virus. And almost all of those swabs were taken from the western part of the market where the live mammals were kept. You know, I'd always thought of the animals only staying very briefly in the market because they get bought and killed and, you know, eaten. But this makes me realise that they live at the market for quite a long time, enough for the virus to sort of go round. Well, I guess I'm just speculating here, but even if you have animals coming in and out, if you have enough of them and they're in close enough contact, that's going to be enough for transmission. Yeah. And and so photos and documents from November 2019 gives us an idea of what kinds of animals we're talking about here. Um, There are raccoon dogs, hog badgers, Chinese bamboo rats, red foxes, or all kinds of mammals. Mm. Um, We now know that all of those are capable of being Affected by the coronavirus, and we do also know that raccoon dogs are capable of spreading it. And so, what happened once the virus was spreading in the in these mammals? It now looks pretty clear that the virus jumped from these animals to humans at least twice. Once around the 25th of November and again around the 2nd of December, that's suggested from an analysis of two early lineages of the virus in humans. Uh, So we've known since basically the beginning that there are two slightly genetically different viruses. It was thought that perhaps one of them might have mutated and evolved from the other. But now looking back at these early swabs, it looks like both variants were present right at the beginning. So there must have been a crossover event twice, essentially. So, okay, what about people who still say, okay, will grudgingly admit that the virus was at the market, but it doesn't mean the pandemic started there? Yeah, I mean, this has been a big question and there's been a huge amount of interest in whether the virus was leaked from a lab or or some other origin. Um, You know, I think it's important to ask questions, but I think generally the wider world may not have been aware that before the pandemic happened, researchers have been warning that something like this was likely to happen for a long time. We knew there was a risk of a virus, probably a coronavirus, emerging and causing a pandemic in a situation like this. So that probably is the simplest explanation. But, but you know, if you want more evidence than that, which of course we do, if you look at the first cases of COVID-19 and then actually eliminate all of those with a direct link to this market, all the ones that you're left with still actually cluster around the market. So the market is really strongly implicated at the centre of this. And one of the things that at the beginning sort of put a bit of doubt on this was, you might remember the very earliest recorded case had no links at all to the market, but that was actually cleared up last year. So when the World Health Organization sort of investigated, this was the case of a man who'd been admitted to hospital at an earlier date before the virus was spreading in people. And then subsequently, he caught the coronavirus in hospital once it had broken out from the market. And it, it was just a sort of recording error that made it seem like he had it before the outbreak that's it for this week do rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen thanks to our guests Svenja Siminski Lucy Cook Jacob Aaron Alison George and Claire Wilson I'm Penny Sarche and I'm Rowan Hooper goodbye for now and take care Bye. bye bye This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.